Job 2, verse 9 reads as follows. Then said his wife unto him, Dost thou retain thy integrity? Curse God and die. But he said unto her, Thou speakest as one of the foolish women speaketh. What shall we receive the good at the hand of God, and shall we not receive evil? And all, and all this did not Job sin with his lips. Now when Job's three friends heard of all this evil that was come upon him, they came every one from his own place. Eliphaz, the Temanite, Bildad, the Shuhite, and Zophar, the, the Namathanite. Right? For they had made an appointment together to come to mourn with him and to comfort him. And when they lifted their, up their eyes from afar off, and they knew him not, they lifted up their voice and wept, and, every, and they rent every one his mantle, and sprinkled dust upon their heads toward heaven. So he sat down with him upon the ground seven days and seven nights, and none spake a word unto him, for they saw that his grief was very great. Let's pray before we look at this uh, book today. Dear God, thank you for being with us uh, and gathering us here to worship you on this Sunday morning. Be with me as I try to speak your word and share your word today. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So, actually, we've had a message very recently on the uh, book of Job from Melvin just a couple months ago, if you guys remember, right? And, uh, you know, book of Job is something we uh, talk about every once in a while. And then last time when Melvin spoke about it, he did mention that, you know... If you guys are paying attention to what he's saying, it's like, oh, you know, there's a lot of stuff in this book, right? There's a lot of stuff in this book. I wish we had more time to talk about it, right? So what he said, we wish we had more time to talk about it. I said, you know what? Maybe we should take more time to talk about it. So today I'm giving a little bit of more of an expanded version of the book of Job, more than what Melvin might have talked about last time. But just to set the stage a little, to set the stage a little, let me uh, start by just doing a little check because this story is kind of a famous story. Right? Story you guys have heard about many times. Let me ask you guys. What do you guys think of when you think of the book of Job here? What comes to your mind? What, you know, having heard this, you know, if you guys have been around here, you guys have heard it many times and uh, the story over and over again. What pops to your mind when you have this, uh, uh, you know, very famous story? So, we were thinking about uh, how Job was, had trials, suffering. How Job was sinless. Let's see what other answers we get here, right? Uh, he was faithful. He lost everything, right? I mean, these are the things that we typically think of when we think about Job. Are they not, right? These are probably the most uh, the common uh, concepts associated with this book, right? And we've got some more coming in, right? Sadness, how he was strong-willed. He came through despair. All right, good stuff here. And maybe more things will pop up as you guys uh, uh, come up with more things. But here's the, here's, here's the point. I want to bring that up. The story that we've heard so many times about Job the strong-willed, Job the faithful, Job the trial. A lot of that is all contained in three chapters. Chapter 1, chapter 2, and chapter 42. Right? 1, 2, and 42. But here's the question. Aren't there 39 chapters in the middle? There are, are there not, right? There's 1, 2, 42. That's where you have the story of these things, right? What happens in the middle? Why don't we talk about this big gap that's, you know, 39 chapters of God's word, right? What's up with that? Well, that's why I figured we'd take a little deeper look at it today. Not a super deep look because, as I said, 39 chapters. That could be... We could, we could spend months and months and years and years talking about 39 chapters of text, right? But today I figure we'll look a little bit 
at least an overview of what's in those other chapters. In fact, we'll be doing a series, because I don't think I can finish it one day. We'll be doing it a couple times, maybe two times, looking at what happens in between. We know in the beginning what happened. He suffered, he lost everything, he was facing the trial. We know at the end, he passed the trial, right? What happens in between? Why is there so much stuff that gets left out? So we'll look at that today. But let's start at the beginning, the background. What's this, what's it all about, right? What's Job about? Hopefully this is familiar to a lot of you guys, right? But, you know, we'll go through it all to get to, uh, for completeness sake, right? So the book of Job, the background was written by someone. We don't know. Ultimately, it's written by God, right? It doesn't clear who the author is. But God told this story to someone to write it down, right? When did he write it down? No idea. But people speculate that Job is one of the oldest books in the Bible, in chronologically, right? Chronologically. They have their methods of figuring this out based on the context, based on um, the, the, the writings, to figure out that this might be one of the very, very early books, right? Could have happened even closer to, closer on the scale of Bible history, closer to Noah's day, right? Based on the fact that they look at how old Job is, right? When it says Job lived for 140 years, we know that people used to live a lot longer early on, right, in human history. And the lifespans got a lot shorter as time progressed. So that's why people think, oh, maybe this is like an old story, a very long time ago. A lot of people ask, is it even a true story? Now, of course, we have no idea to know if it, whether it's true or not, because Job was just one guy, one guy out of human history, out of the billions of people who've lived throughout Earth, you know. There's no record, right, obviously. But we have no reason to doubt that this is a true story. Some people say, oh, is it just a parable? I don't know, maybe it is, right? But I doubted it because we know later on in the New Testament, we have authors like James, like Paul, they reference, oh, Job, right? The patience of Job, right? Uh, the faithfulness of Job. That kind of confirms that this is a true story, a true person, and a true biblical text, right? The Bible refers to other texts. We know that's kind of a self-referencing, that we know that, ah, oh, this is a true story, a true word of God, because the other word of God uh, cross-references it, confirms it. It's considered to be a great work of poetry, right? This is the poetry section of the Bible, right? Even though it doesn't seem like it. Just like how we had Sunday school this morning with Psalms with Melvin, right? Even though it doesn't seem like a song, right? It's because we don't know the language, right? This is in translation. But in translation, if it was translated back to the original, Job is actually considered a poetry. Much in the same way when you guys went to high school once upon a time and studied like the Iliad and the Odyssey. It's a, it's a poem of poetry. Those are poems and poetry. Same thing. Job is an epic poem, people say, right? How much so? If you ask English scholars, which I don't think any of you guys are here, but if you were an English major and studied English seriously in college, they would say the book of Job actually is one of the most well-regarded, famous, epic works, worthy, worthy of, uh, worthy of our, uh, what do you call it? of our reverence, not just as a spiritual text, but as actually a work of, English, a work of a writing, work of writing. So if this book is so great that even these uh, English scholars and stuff say, oh, Job is so great, why don't we look at it? Why don't we figure out what's in there that makes it so great? What's in there? That what's, what, how is it written up? How is the message presented that's so great for us? And what can we learn from that? So that's what we'll go on to a little bit more right now. But first, the familiar story. 
the ones from chapter 1, 2, and 42, the one you've heard many times, hopefully. But for the one person in there out here that maybe have not heard it, the quick 10-cent summary, right? We know from the beginning that Job is a prosperous and faithful man. How prosperous? He says he has 7,000 sheep, 3,000 camels, 500 yoke of oxen, 500 she-asses, a very great household. Let me ask you a question. That sounds like a big amount, right? How much do you think this is worth in today's dollars? 7,000 sheep, 3,000 camels, right? 500 yoke of oxen. How rich, really, do you think Job was? See what the opinions are here, right? We got some votes coming in. So, was it one million, five million, twenty million, hundred million? So we got a lot of votes here, right? So if Job were today had all these animals, right? Even today, you think that's a lot of animals, right? How many people do you know own seven thousand sheep? I don't know anyone that owns 7,000 sheep, right? You'd be a big time farmer if you did. Well, the number one answer seems like you guys think this is worth 20 million, 20 million, right? If I had a vote, I would have vote for 5 million. Brian, what's the right answer? 20 million. 20 million. Ah, 20 million is the answer. That's a lot, right? So even I did not know the right answer, right? 20 million, you guys were right. You got the right answer. No, majority of you guys. So he's a rich guy. In fact, it says in verse number... Uh, uh, in one of the early verses, it says that he was a really great man, the greatest man of all the East. That's in chapter 1, verse 3. He was the greatest man of all the East, right? Great were his possessions, great were his things, right? And of course, then, as the story goes, Satan comes up to God and says, well, he's a really faithful guy because you've made him so great, right? You know, obviously he loves you. He has so much stuff. <coughs> and so God's willing to say to, to put Job to the test and say, well, even if he didn't have all this stuff, he would stay faithful. And so it goes that Job loses all his stuff, right? His servants get murdered. His uh, livestock gets stolen, right? And even his children, you know, he had, uh, he had seven sons and three daughters. They die in a horrific accident. They, they die in a building collapse, right? So all this stuff, horrible stuff happens, and Job sins not. He doesn't curse God, right? And Satan brings up point number two. Point number two, which is that, uh, that, oh, you took away all his physical stuff and all his outside stuff, but, oh, I bet if you harmed him personally, harmed him personally, he would turn around and curse you, right? And so God lets him have boils from head to toe, right? But in all these things, God stay, uh, Job stays uh, faithful. The key verse, verse number 22, right, 122, and all this Job sinned not, nor charged God foolishly. Right? And that's your typical standard. We hold Job out, as we did earlier in that word association, well, not as, the, as kind of like a gold standard of patience and faithfulness and all this stuff. And a lot of times when we talk about this book, we talk about, what, about how it explains why bad things happen to good people. Right? But actually, if we look at these middle chapters, we'll learn a different lesson, an interesting lesson. More so than that, we learn, really, the actual theme of this book is how do the righteous suffer? It's not why do they suffer, it's how. What happens to Job? How does he deal with it? How does the people around him deal with it? That's what we're gonna look at right now when we look at these middle chapters. So there's a lot to talk about, right? And a lot of, uh, 
lot of things in these, in these verses, in these chapters, and so on and so forth. But why do we always skip them over? Well, it could be a few reasons. Let me offer my speculation before we go on here. Part of it is probably that it's long, right? Some people look at this and say, oh boy, this is like uh, 39 chapters. Can we just skip to the end, right? Especially when a lot of us, we, know the, we have the spoiler alert, right? We already know the ending, right? Sometimes when you know the ending, you don't feel like getting to it, right? You know, sometimes, you know, watching TV, like I watch it with Elaine. Like Elaine watches these series, right? These serialized series. And sometimes I might watch the first few episodes with her. And then when she has free time, she'll watch like the next 10 episodes and got to the end already, right? And she'll watch the last episode. And you know the ending. It is, oh, sorry, I watch, you know, I binge watch episodes. Do you want to go back and watch the middle episodes? And I'll say, no, I don't want to watch it. I already know the ending, right? What's the point? I know the ending. I know the answer, right? So same thing. Maybe some people don't like reading these middle chapters because we know the ending. We know what happened to Job at the end. He was restored at the end. Everything got restored to him, you know, doubly so, right? You know, <coughs> that could be one reason why people, you know, don't want to look at this stuff, right? And another reason is, interesting reason why people might look at it is that, you know, a lot of this is people talking, right? Maybe it's too boring for them to just hear speeches back and forth and back and forth. One guy's speech and another guy's speech, right? It feels like you're reading a book of like Shakespeare or something, like right? all these soliloquies and speeches, right? And the final reason why maybe even churches don't focus on it is because a lot of the stuff, although the story is God's word, a lot of stuff said by Job and Job's friends aren't necessarily correct, right? So a lot of these words you can't take for safe face value. This is the opinion of the speaker. And this is God recording. What did the speaker say? And that's his opinion. Not necessarily what is God's opinion. So that's another reason. Maybe some speakers and pastors, they look at this and say, well, we don't spend too much time talking about this when this is not just the opinion of Job, the opinion of Job's friend. Not necessarily what is God's opinion on all this. But I think these are important verses nonetheless. They're important verses because <clears throat> they, they give a full picture of Job, right? A full picture of Job the man, right? Because Job the story is like this idealized, perfect guy. Oh, he's so faithful. He suffered so much. He did all this stuff. But these are the verses that reveal what he went through. And you re they reveal how he was just, in many ways, like you and me. He makes him a lot more relatable. It tells us of his suffering, about his grief, about his highs and his lows, about how he had his own doubts and his own worries. And it wasn't as cut and dry as, oh, I love God all day long. But he's questioning himself throughout this whole process. It gives us a fuller picture when we talk about this theme of how the righteous are made to suffer. And it informs us when we look at the way we suffer in our lives. So let's go on to the content. We're going to take this first block today, chapters 3 to 27. 3 to 27. We read the verses at the start from chapter 2, which kind of set the scene. Set the, <coughs> set the scene. Set the scene. All this horrible stuff has happened to him. Even Job's wife has said, hey, you know, curse God and die, right? And then his three friends show up, right? Eliphaz, Bildad, and Zophar. And they are there to meet his friends. Let me ask you guys, if this happened to you, and this is your buddy, what would you say to Job? What could, would you possibly say to him after all this stuff happens? What kind of things would might you think to say to Job?
people are taking deep thoughts here, right? So, so it's kind of, text is kind of small. So I'll read out some of these answers, right? Everything happens for a reason. God is control. Sorry. Someone said, hang in there. One guy said, better you than me, right? Says, uh, things will get better. I will lend an ear if need be. What happened? Oh, that's, that's a good one. So those are some of the answers. There's more to come. Though. I'll pray for you. God has a plan. Let me know how I can pray for you. This too shall pass. Right? So here's some of the answers you guys. And maybe more will populate up there. Sorry. Right? I don't know. It's hard for people in the back to read it. So that's why I read out loud for you guys. But, uh, you know, and whatever else populates up there, you guys can look at it later. But, you know, these verses here, 3 to 27, are, are the, the Bildad, Eliphaz, and Zophar version of what they said to Job. So Job went through all this stuff. What did they say? So let's look at a few of these things. What happens is there's speeches, right, in three cycles. Cycles mean that, oh, these guys talk, like Job talks, and everyone else has a chance to talk, right? And then again, you know, everyone talks, Job talks. And then again, it's like everyone gets a turn to say something. And that's the way God writes it down in these, uh, 27 cha- these uh, 24 chapters over here. So in the first cycle, it starts off with chapter 3. Job, what's the first thing he said? It said in verse number, excuse me, before we get in there. Remember, in chapter 2, it says that he was so in grief, he didn't talk for seven days and seven nights. Seven days and seven nights. His friends were there waiting for him to say something. And finally, chapter 3, he says something. What's the first thing he says? In chapter 3, to summarize, he says, I wish I was never born. Chapter 3, verse 11. You guys have to turn to these verses. I'll just read them to you because so, there's going to be a lot of verses and going around. He says, Why died I not from the womb? Why did I not give up the ghost when I came out of the belly? So we hold up Job as like this perfect guy. But look, the first thing he says isn't praise God, hallelujah. The first thing he says is, I wish I were dead. He's in grief. I bet he was depressed. Wouldn't you be depressed, right? Your kids died. Your servants got murdered. Your riches are taken away. That's depressing, certainly. I would believe it. So his first reaction is not, yay, I'm going to stick to God no matter what. His first reaction is, I wish I were dead. Right? How would you feel? Oh, boy, if you, your family died and all these things like that, right? you feel horrible. He felt horrible. He's a relatable guy. You know, that's the thing about this story. You know, this story is one that could take place in any time. Right? That's why we don't know the date. Maybe it's intentional we don't know the date. Because this story of tragedy could have happened back in Noah's day. Could have happened in 700 BC. Could have happened today. Right? Even if some guy today had 7,000 sheep and someone stole them all and his family died in a building collapse, it would be still a relatable story, would it not? Right? It could even happen today. But that's his first reaction. A reaction of depression, sorrow, grief. And how do his friends react? So they go back and forth. And we'll go in detail, you know, a little bit, just to give you a flavor. It starts off, basically, with like Eliphaz, one friend saying, you reap what you sow. In chapter 4, he says that uh, they that plow iniquity and sow wickedness reap the same. Right? And Job's reaction says, I wish I was dead. Right? Life, short, life is short anyway. Why not be dead? Build that. Seek God and be righteous. God will restore you, right? And Job's reaction, yeah, I know God is great, right? But why is this happening to me? Then later, you know, 
Later on, Zophar says, oh, you know, you say you're pure, but God knows wickedness and the wicked are judged, right? And boy, if people are wicked, they should turn away, right? Job's reaction, chapter 10, he says what? Thou knowest I am not wicked. Here's the back and forth. Job criticizes Zophar, saying, you're not telling me anything new. You're not helping me. And he says, God, let me die. God, let me die. It's kind of like, end my suffering. I don't know what it is. You cursed me with all these things, but now I wish I were dead. That's the first cycle of speeches. The second cycle is in chapter 15 to 21. And now the friends start, who start off talking generally about what happened to the wicked start pointing their fingers directly at Job, right? They say directly, for example, in chapter 15, thine own mouth condemneth thee, right? Thine own lips testify against thee. They're saying, Job, you know, this is you. You did it. We're not just saying this is what happened to wicked people. We're saying you are a wicked guy, right? Job's reaction, he calls them unhelpful. In chapter 16, he says, miserable comforters are ye all, right? Verse 17, verse 10, he says, I cannot find one wise man among you, right? And he starts to argue back with them, right? Argues back with them. So they keep saying the same thing, right? Job, what have you done wrong, right? Why don't you turn away from your wrong, whatever it is, your wickedness? Job points out in chapter 21. Now he starts to argue with them instead, right? He says, wherefore do the wicked live and become old, yea, are mighty in power, right? He says, you guys keep talking about this, but isn't it true that the wicked also live, right? They don't always die. They don't always get punished. So why do you guys keep harping on this? And the third cycle, chapter 22 to 27, again, the friends tell him, God is great. It's time to repent. And Job says, basically, I'm innocent. So now he's turned away a little bit from his suicidal thoughts, instead saying, hey, you know, it all seems so hopeless, right? For the wicked, right? You guys are saying how hopeless the wicked are. But I don't feel that I'm wicked. I don't feel that I'm wicked, right? And of course, as we know through all this time, also he does not curse God. But boy, does he question, right? Does he question? Does he doubt himself? Does he feel low? Does he feel depressed? Certainly, all these things. So what can we learn from all this? These big speeches. And hopefully, you guys will take time to read it yourself. Again, we can't go in detail through all these 20-some-odd chapters of the back and the forth and the specific words and the arguments. But I try to give you a flavor, right? And pretty long summary here. But what can we gather about these friends, right? How were they as friends? What makes a good friend? What makes someone a good friend? Let me ask you that. So these were Job's friends. They were there to comfort him. Were they good friends? Were they bad friends? We'll talk about that in a moment. But let me ask you, first of all, what do you value in terms of friendship, of being a friend? Let's see what, uh, how people vote on this. What are the important characteristics? It's important to be trustworthy and honest, dependable and loyal, empathetic, non-judgmental, be a good listener, supportive in good and bad times, fun to be around, right? What are the key traits that you guys look for in your lives and your friends? And we'll compare that to what uh, Job had and we'll wrap up in just a few minutes, right? So we've got about a 
We've got nine votes coming in so far. So what's number one? <coughs> Ten votes. Oh, may I wait a minute then? See how many more votes come in here. All right, we've got 12 votes. The number one answer is you want friends who are trustworthy, dependable, right? Uh, supportive. Oh, the answers are, wait, the rankings are changing. We've got more votes coming in here. Dependable, trustworthy, good listeners, supportive, right? Empathetic. People don't care very much about being fun, right? So on. But, uh, you know, looking at these, pe- these friends, they tell us a little about how we ought to act. Again, remember this, the theme of this book, how we act when suffering happens, right? How do the righteous suffer? And how do we handle that suffering as a community? These friends, they were good in some ways, right? They were good because they were around, were they not? For seven days, Job stood silent. He was grieving. The friends were with him for seven days. Certainly, they were dependable. They were there. They were loyal, right? You guys value that highly, right? They were dependable, loyal. They were there. What? 50% is showing up, right? If you're there, you're there. If you're not there, what can you do, right? If you're not even there. They were there. They were there. Ah, and they were honest with them, I guess, right? They try shared what they knew about God and God's judgment. But there are some things that they failed at, right? The bad was that they gave them some bad advice, right? Some bad advice. Like I said early on, one of the reasons why we don't look at in detail what did Eliphaz say, what did Bildad say, what did Zophar say, is that some of the stuff they said is wrong, right? They, they chart on and on about how the wicked are meant to suffer. And Job himself points out the fallacy in this. He says, wait, isn't that true that the wicked don't always suffer? We know it's true in life. We look around uh, nowadays, look at all the people that don't believe in God, don't go to church, don't, don't, you know, that are, that are bad people, that they lie and steal and cheat. And they, you know, they, they're successful in business. They have millions of dollars. They seem externally happy. How is it true that there's a one-to-one correlation of, ah, you do bad stuff, you get punished, you do good stuff, you get rewarded. The answer is there isn't such a one-to-one correlation. We can't draw that conclusion, right? That's not the way it works. That's why they were wrong to be judging others. We've had one of the answers, one of the topics over here, right? About being judgmental, right? These people were judging Job, right? In his time of need, when his time of suffering, their reaction was to cast blame, right? As a friend, as a Christian friend, as a supportive friend, that's not the example we ought to follow, right? We've seen people, we know people, that have suffered and gone through trials and all these things, right? For example, we've had people at church have health problems, something serious, even serious like, you know, cancer even, right? We don't say to the person that gets cancer, aha, you're a low-down, dirty sinner, you deserve it, right? Would that be a horrible reaction, a horrible thing to say to someone? What do we do when we have people with serious health scares, with surgeries, with cancer, with all these things? What do we do? We banded together the church and we said, we're going to pray for you, right? We're going to support you in prayer, right? We're going to be there for you in consolation by your side, right? We're going to say, hey, would you need help? I'll be there for you. You guys at the very start in the first question raised up some of those very similar type answers. 
the job of a Christian is not to castigate, but to encourage, right? To encourage. Well, yeah, maybe someone did sin and do wrong. You don't just say, oh, well, you deserved it. You reap what you sow. You say, let me help you get on the right path. It's not enough just to say, aha, you screwed up. It's, hey, let me help you get it right. You know, there's, you guys have all heard of Alcoholics Anonymous, right? It helps people who are drunk. You know, Alcoholics Anonymous started off and is associated with, even today, I think, associated a lot with Christian organizations, right? Why is that? Christians don't just say, hey, you drank alcohol, you sin, you're drunk, no down, you're no good, dirty, loser person. It's, hey, we we take the effort here to actually put you on the right path. Yeah, you did wrong. Yeah, you sinned. You got drunk, did all this bad stuff. But let's help you try to get back on the right path. And that's why there's all these AA meetings that take on, that go on in church and stuff, churches and stuff, and why I've actually known people in ministries where they work with the drunks, the drug addicted, and try to rehabilitate them, not only away from their addictions, but to God, right? To encourage them on the right path. Not just condemnation, but support. That's what was missing from these people, right? To suffer, to suffer is Christ-like. Did not Jesus himself suffer, right? Jesus suffered on the cross more than you and I could imagine, right? He felt all the pain of the world, the pain of all of your sins and my sins. Is it not surprising that we suffer ourselves in our lives? But just like Jesus suffered, when Jesus saw other sufferers, what did he do? He comforted Likewise, it's our role to be the comforter, not to be the Bildad, the Zophar, the Eliphaz, the criticizers, but to be, you know, what they were at the beginning, the supporters, the supporters to get people on the right path. You know, we have a quote here from Jack Hiles. He said this, suffering is the strongest and closest fellowship in the world. It's supposed to be in these times of adversity that we band together. We come together as one, as a body of Christ as a family in Christ to support and, uh, and push each other forward. That's what we ought to do. And that's what didn't happen in these verses here, in these chapters here we studied. Now, next time when we go forward in our study, we're going to see what God says about suffering. And that's really interesting when God talks to Job and gives him his view of these things about his suffering and what he thinks. But we have run way out of time right now, and we've got to wrap up and get to the flyer passing meeting, all these things, right? But we'll cut it off right now, and we'll pick it up next time. Uh, let's pause forward to prayer. Uh, dear God, thank you for the book of Job. There's a lot of stuff in here, you know? Boy, today we covered... Uh, the 20-some-odd 20 chap- 20 chapters worth of stuff. It was a whirlwind. But hopefully, you know, audience got something out of it that they haven't heard before about the book of Job and it reminds them, you know, how it ought to be as a, as a body of Christ, as a family in Christ, of how we handle suffering. This whole book is about how we handle suffering. This part, we looked at how others support the sufferer. Hopefully, when something happens to any of us here, we're going to be there for each other, uh, side by side, ready to go to uh, support them, to pray for them, right? We didn't see ever Eliphaz or Zophar and uh, Bildad say, Job, let me pray for you. Job, let me, uh, let me support you. Job, let me help you with it. No, they didn't say any of that. They just criticized. Hopefully we don't fall in those traps either. Help us to be our best as a family, as a body in Christ. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.